all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. 85 isolated showers and storms tonight, low 70s. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at UMMC and program director of the MedPeds Residency Program. School is here, and now is the time to make sure your teen is prepared. Part of ensuring that they will have a healthy year and years to come is to get vaccinated. Today we'll be discussing the vaccinations recommended for your teen, what they help protect against, and what to expect when you see your doctor for a preschool checkup. As usual, we'll be taking your calls. We would love to hear from you this morning. You can reach us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. President Trump is headed to West Virginia later today for a campaign rally. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, this is his first rally since the failure of the Senate health care bill. With cheering, chanting crowds, Trump is fueled by the energy of these rallies. And this one comes at a challenging time in his presidency with staff shakeups and a key campaign promise to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act flatlining in the Senate. It will be the president's first rally since bringing on John Kelly as chief of staff. And it's not clear whether the retired general will have any influence over the usually free-flowing style of Trump's rally performances. Trump was in West Virginia just last week to speak to the Boy Scouts Jamboree. The chief scout executive later apologized to those in the scouting community who were offended by the political rhetoric Trump inserted into the jamboree. Tamara Keith, NPR News. President Trump is backing Republican legislation that would dramatically reduce legal immigration and shift the nation toward a system that prioritizes merit and skills over family ties. The bill so far has gained little traction in the Senate. The Trump administration wants to investigate discrimination against Asian American college applicants. Kurt Carapeza from Member Station WGBH reports the investigation stems from a 2015 complaint filed against the country's oldest university. Two years ago, a coalition of more than 60 organizations accused Harvard of holding Asian American applicants to higher standards than black and Latino applicants and asked the federal government to investigate. The Obama administration dismissed that claim. Now, the Trump administration is exploring legal action against Harvard. The announcement comes after an internal job posting at the Justice Department appeared to signal a shift in priorities of the Civil Rights Division toward complaints of reverse discrimination. That posting was first reported in The New York Times. But the Justice Department denies a broader probe into affirmative action policies. Harvard says its admissions policy complies with the law and it will welcome its most diverse freshman class this fall. For NPR News, I'm Kurt Carapeza in Boston. 
A French journalist has been detained in Turkey. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports the journalist is accused of collaborating with terrorist organizations. Freelance journalist Lupuro was detained last week by Turkish authorities in southeastern Turkey on the border with Iraq. Bureau has reported on Kurdish groups fighting in Syria. Turkey considers those groups terrorist organizations. Turkey jails more journalists than any other nation. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reporting from Paris. Stocks are trading mixed on Wall Street. The Dow was down a fraction. The Nasdaq down 17. The S&P up a fraction. This is NPR News. Electric car maker Tesla is reporting better-than-expected earnings, even though it's lost more than $300 million. NPR's Sonari Glinton reports the company is incurring losses as it releases the Model 3, its new affordable electric car. In an unusual move, Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, used the conference call about Tesla's earnings to tamp down some of the hype surrounding the Model 3. That's the company's all-new electric car. And it's because, he says, producing an all-new car in mass quantities will be really hard. When I said manufacturing hell and supply chain hell, I'm in it. You know, we, we know this. We signed up for it. Not blaming hell because we bought the ticket. 500,000 consumers have signed up for the Model 3, even though very few have seen the car in person, let alone driven one. Musk says if a consumer orders a car today, they can drive it by the end of next year. Sonari Glenton, NPR News. Excessive heat warnings have been posted along the West Coast. National Weather Service meteorologist Dustin Guy says the Pacific Northwest is dealing with some unusual heat. We have a uh, very strong ridge of high pressure over the area, and that's also combining with what's what's called offshore flow, which keeps the uh, Pacific marine air from infiltrating into the uh, inland areas of of the Pacific Northwest. When those two conditions combine, we get uh, very warm weather. Officials in Seattle have opened several cooling centers and are urging residents to take advantage of city pools and spray parks. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Exxon and Mobil with Synergy Gasoline, engineered in Exxon Mobil's Formula One fuel lab. Exxon and Mobil, energy lives here. And the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at UMMC and program director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Last week, we discussed some ways to ensure your kids and teens make a good transition back to school because it's here. If you didn't know it, it's here. And we'll be continuing that discussion this week as we talk specifically about adolescent vaccinations. And here to help us out with that discussion is Dr. Sandy Feldman, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at UMMC and former Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Good morning, Dr. Feldman. Good morning. Thank you. Welcome back. Dr. Feldman's been on a couple of times before, and uh, we've always enjoyed having his expertise. Uh, For those who haven't heard Dr. Feldman, I'm going to ask him to sort of 
uh, tell how he got to Mississippi because if it shouldn't take you more than about five minutes to realize that he hasn't always been in Mississippi. No, I'm, I'm, obviously my accent is a dead giveaway. <laughs> um, I wandered on south from Brooklyn, New York, but actually wound up at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis and spent about uh, almost 20 years there before coming to UMC where I spent another almost 15 to 20 years. And I got interested in vaccines in children with cancer um, because obviously they, they need to be protected just as well as the normal healthy child. And then when I came here, I became even more active with vaccines than now in normal children. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been involved in, in the last 20, 25 years. You know, I can. It, it's funny, like the evolution of, of vaccinations and their use and, uh, you know, the, the, the huge successes with vaccine preventable illnesses over the last century. Uh, but then I can remember in college back in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, with with a lot of expectations, and we really haven't haven't met all those expectations, but a lot of expectations that vaccines were going to be, you know, the cure for cancer. And uh, it's exciting that now we have one that can help at least prevent uh, prevent uh, you know a certain type of cancer. Yeah, that's the new Gardasil. Actually, not new vaccine that's been around now for um, ten or more years, and it prevents an infection which can lead to cancer um, called human papillomavirus, which in most people is sort of a nothing infection. They don't even know they have it. But what can happen over time in a small percentage of the population is you get changes to the area which it infects, and these predispose to cancer. Um, For example, the most common one that everybody really knows about is cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. There are almost 10,000 cases of that, new cases of that, uh, per year, obviously occurring in women. I mean, vulva cancers also. And there are other cancers that occur uh, which are due to this HPV uh, virus, which basically the studies have shown now for at least 10 or 15 years that are preventable. Mm-hmm. And giving the vaccine, what's interesting, you give it to an adolescent, particularly the younger adolescent, they do better in terms of higher antibody titers and what looks like better protection than when you give it to the older adolescents. And that's why it's one of those vaccines that's recommended at 11 and 12 years of age and strongly recommended because it prevents cancer. Why would somebody not want to prevent cancer yeah. in their child? You know, I, so I don't routinely take care of of uh, patients with cervical cancer, but certainly in my training, I've seen a, a lot of it uh, and had some patients of mine that yeah. did develop it. And it is not something that's, uh, you know, certainly any type of cancer. There are certain types of cancers that are, that are harder to treat. Uh, cervical cancer, uh, I think everybody's aware of pap smears uh, is, a, is one of the screening techniques. Uh, but those just screen for early cancer once it develops or precancerous lesion. Right. So, this is a total another way to help prevent that, not just watch out for it. It would be, I guess, the analogy is if, uh, you know, if you could protect your house against a burglar coming in and robbing you, uh, a, 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 uh, if there were various degrees of that, a pap smear would be like after they've reached the front door and come inside, 
you know, you might can stop them in various ways. But the the vaccine, the HPV vaccine, would be they don't even get into your yard. Yeah, it literally prevents them from entering the front door. Period. Right. right. So let's let maybe we should back up a little bit because there's a lot of confusion with vaccinations and how they work. And uh, so could, let's talk about about that a little bit. So how do vaccinations work in general? Well, they they work in in two ways. One is you develop these antibodies which float around in the bloodstream, and these antibodies protect against the infection. Uh, literally, quote, kill the virus, kill the bacteria. Um, and the other is you have cells in your body, uh, many of which are staying in your spleen and in your uh, liver, which also produce a protective substance. So you have two ways in which you go after a foreign whatever, the foreign being virus, being bacteria. And those are natural mechanisms that the body has in place to fight those off. And all we're doing with the vaccines is stimulating those to be prepared in case you get that virus or that bacteria. Yeah. And uh, again, I guess I love analogies for things to help. It helps me, uh, you know, understand things more. And I've, I've told some people this, that, you know, it's if your child is, is uh, preparing for a test and you give them a sample test so that they can see the same types of questions so that when they get the real test that they make an A on it, that they do well on it. And what we're doing with vaccinations is we're showing the body these substances that look like or they're a part of that actual bacteria or virus so that when the body sees that again, that they'll be able to fight that off. Is that a fair? That's the perfect analogy. Yeah. You couldn't do better. So, um, so, you know, I guess another question we get often is, you know, if you look at the vaccination schedule, so there's there's downloadable schedules you can anybody can go to from the, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control or other uh, uh, pediatric websites. And you can see this huge chart, uh, you know, of vaccinations at different ages. So how does that chart come about? How did that come about over time? And and why is it changing from time to time? Well, I think the way the chart developed was it was apparent that there are some vaccines which you need to give earlier in life. For example, whooping cough. Um, you may get whooping cough as a 35-year-old adult or a 40-year-old, and you'll cough and all this kind of stuff, but that's basically about it. And what was found that with whooping cough, for example, it's infants very young that tend to get the most severe disease and tend to die of whooping cough. So you have to come up come up with a vaccine, which they did this one back in the 40s, and found that the earlier you gave it to infants, the better protected they were. Mm-hmm. So many of the vaccines that we give age-dependent is because that's when the infections can be the worst for that particular age group. Yeah. And exposures to change from time to time. Right. And certainly there are some situations where uh, you may have more risk involved with exposure at different ages and different situations. Correct. Um, so, so, you know, again, looking back at when your physician recommends these vaccinations, there, there are two big entry points into school that they seem to coincide with. Uh, you know, there's a lot early on, as you mentioned, to help prevent against diseases like whooping cough and others um, that, you know, 100 years ago caused a lot of, uh, if, if not just, uh, you know, health problems, but death uh, in infants that we just don't see anymore. 
But then there's there's school entry, uh, or at least kindergarten entry, is one big point of getting those. And then another one with pre-adolescence, right? Right. And that's sort of been the latest, is with pre-adolescence requiring and recommending certain um, vaccines. For example, again, whooping cough. Uh, it's not that the adolescent is going to get whooping cough and be on a respirator and have to breathe for him. It's that the adolescent can get a cough which could be relatively mild, but he winds up giving it to his niece, his nephew, his younger siblings. And we found that uh, what we need to do to protect the family unit, as well as to protect the adolescent, is to give him another dose of the vaccine, so-called the adolescent booster. Yeah, and that's recommended, too, for other family members if they're going to have, you know, a a new baby in the home and grandparents, if they're going to have, you know, a lot of contact with that that child. Well, it's the cocooning. If you look at how an infant who, if the infant's less than three months of age and gets whooping cough, that's basically where the vast majority of deaths in America occur in infants is the best way to protect that young infant is to have everybody around him protected yeah the older siblings which again usually are but giving it to the father we know now that if you give it to the mother during pregnancy she develops antibodies which she gives to the baby and that in turn protects that newborn until we can start vaccinating yeah that's great and many families grandparents are the ones who take care of these kids Parents are working, grandparents are retired, so they're the babysitters, et cetera, et cetera. And you need to give them the vaccine also to protect them. Mm-hmm. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Dr. Sandy Feldman, and we're talking about vaccinations, particularly those vaccinations that are recommended for adolescents. We would love to hear from you this morning if you have any questions about those vaccinations. You can call us at 1 877 MPB Ring. That's 1 877 672-7464 or send an email to us at kids at mpbonline.org We're going to take a short break and continue our discussion about vaccinations right after this. Just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. Music Radio is classical music, but much more. You can hear jazz, folk and bluegrass, and of course, Mississippi's own, the blues. And music is featured on shows like A Prairie Home Companion and the Mississippi Arts Hour. Access Music Radio online at mpbonline.org via the MPB app or with an HD radio receiver. Music all day, every day on MPB's Music Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens, with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mbbonline.org. 
Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Dr. Sandy Feldman, and we're talking about immunizations, particularly those immunizations that are recommended for your adolescent. Some of the reasons behind that just got uh, started with our discussion and would love to hear your questions on that. I know you have questions out there. You can call us today at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 672 7464 Or send us an email at kids at org. So we're talking about some of the, the main vaccinations and those points that you get those. And for adolescents, what, is, what are some of the main ones that we recommend now? Well, the, another one that's recommended is the meningococcal or meningitis vaccine. Now, clearly, most meningitis occurs in young infants. No question about that. But there's another peak, and that peak occurrence is in adolescence and early adulthood. And is that just because of the time period or because they're in closer proximity to one another or... Well, nobody really has got a great explanation. I mean, we do know, for example, that back in World War II, um, before we had any of these vaccines, that new recruits getting into the military would come down with outbreaks of meningitis all over the, the military camps. Um, so that's part of the factor. But why all of a sudden, even for kids who don't go to college, don't live in a dormitory... Still an increased risk. Still an increased risk. Gotcha. So uh, in in meningitis, uh, you know, people may not be familiar with that, again, because a lot of that is because of the successes of of some of the vaccinations. So that's an infection around the brain, right? Right. It involves the structures around the brain. And what are some of the long-term consequences of that? Well, the long-term can be a total disaster. I mean, besides death, and death can be up to 10% in some of these uh, meningitis is, is you can have all kinds of brain damage, everything from blindness to loss of a limb um, to hearing uh, defects. And it used to be one of the main causes right. of hearing. Uh, loss was loss. meningitis yeah. occurring in young infants. And in fact, um, up until the middle of the 80s, there was a hip meningitis, which caused about 25,000 cases a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now the state of Mississippi, we only have had one. The only one we had in the last couple of years was randomly in some adult, yeah. not even in a kid. Yeah, um, And that's a success. You know, that's one of the things about Mississippi. We don't get many chances to say, hey, we're doing well in this. And particularly with, with some of the health care challenges that we have. Um, that's one of the areas that we can brag on. We can say we're doing a good job. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we rest on our laurels because we're doing a good job because of a lot of hard work and a lot of education out there. Yes, and, you know, vaccines have always been a strong point in this state and very readily accepted by the population. I mean, they had measles outbreak in Memphis. We didn't, and we're right next door to Memphis. Yeah. Um, you name all different infections, and we really haven't had many of those because our population is so well protected. Mm -hmm. And it's important that it's everybody. I mean, you can't just have a few kids protected and say, well, that's good enough. You have to have the vast majority of them, of the kids to be protected to prevent the diseases. And that's what's happening in this state. We're preventing these diseases. Let's go to Heather in Memphis, our first caller of the morning. Good morning, Heather. Are you there, Heather? Yes. Thank you for calling. Yes. Um, I My question was actually about vaccine education, and it kind of falls into what you were just talking about. What kind of efforts are being done to educate the general public on vaccines since we have seen 
um, pockets of outbreaks because people have fears about vaccinating their children. What is the medical community kind of doing as a whole to help combat that? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there are several things that are being done. First of all is your own physician is becoming more and more well-educated in vaccines. I mean, I go throughout the state talking to pediatricians, family practitioners, and updating them and educating them on vaccines. You'll also notice that you will see public service announcements um, about vaccines. And the other thing is there's more and more on the Internet positive about the vaccine, not just the anti-vaxxers. But you can find more information about vaccines readily available and easily understandable, not for doctor to doctor kind of stuff, but for actually people out there, real people who have to understand it. And that information is now more readily available um, throughout the Internet. You go to the Centers for Disease Control and they have all kinds of parent stuff and they can print it or you can print it off or read it. And it's basically very simple, straightforward English. Yeah, you know, uh, what Heather brought up is is important, I think, because we've had a shift back in the, the 70s when, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, a lot of, you know, pediatricians and family practitioners and uh, other other physicians, when you took your child to, to go see the doctor, uh, you would just ask them, what do they need? And there there was a different type of, you know, of, of um I guess trust there and uh, that your doctor was going to do the right thing. And you, there wasn't a whole lot of education like there is today. I, you know, as a primary care pediatrician, I, you know, I welcome that. I think, you know, that we've, we've got great data that the more you know about you know, the potential hazards for your life or the life of your, the health of your family, uh, the better you're going to do, you know, if you're informed on that and, uh, there's there's multiple ways. One single way is not gonna you know not gonna get that information out there. It's probably gonna have to be a concerted effort. And I know that's one of the things that uh, that I've tried to do. We try to do more of. Uh, most if if you don't have young kids, you may not know this, but but uh, you know what we do in the office when a child comes in for their or adolescent for their vaccinations is we discuss that with them, tell them what the recommended. Uh, and required, uh, you know, in, in depending on where, what state you're in, vaccinations uh, are for different things. And then to discuss what they protect against. And, you know, we, we have access to a lot of those diseases that people just don't recognize anymore uh, because they're, you know, we've been very successful. And then try to explain, you know, and, and allow them to ask any kind of questions so that we can, you know, answer those uh, with with information and to give them something too. So there's there's plenty of stuff as Dr. Feldman was talking about uh, the, about educating people about the diseases that they protect against uh, the vaccinations themselves, uh, any potential adverse side effects, and uh, and you know sort of the background about why they're recommended. And um, you know I, that I always welcome questions like that uh, from from people, and I think. Uh, the medical community has come a long way. I know just in my short time of, you know, since I was in training uh, to, to welcome those questions. I, th- I think that was about the time when, you know, a lot of a lot of physicians were having some pushback and say, well, you know, why don't you just trust me about that? You know, I want my patients to know more about what what kind of treatment that they're having. So hey, that's a great question. Um, and uh, there are a couple of websites that we've um, that we've, you know, speaking of, of uh, websites, they'll give you good information out there that's based on documented 
you know, findings, good, good medical data uh, about these vaccinations. One of them is not just in particular to vaccinations, uh, but for all kinds of stuff about your kids and teens. And that's healthychildren.org, healthychildren, all uh, scrunched up together.org. And if you just, you can search on that website and it, uh, you can, you know, just say vaccines, particularly if you have questions about one vaccine or multiple vaccines, and it'll give you some of the background there in a format that's understandable. Uh, you can find more. It has links to other sites. And then the CDC has some information too. If you go to cdc.gov, uh, G-O-V, they will, um, you can find a lot of information. So thanks, Heather. That's a, that's a great uh, point to bring up. Appreciate it. Sure. So, um, so let's let's get uh, let's uh, sort of go back to the the types of diseases that are affecting teens. So we said, you know, uh, the the recommended things that they get are a Tdap, uh, which is a booster of something that they should have already gotten prior to that, the meningococcal vaccine, and then HPV that we've been talking about. Um, so, how are we doing in the state? How how are we doing with those? Not very well. We do well with Tdap vaccine. First of all, it's a school requirement. We actually do pretty good with meningococcal vaccine, but we're not doing very well with HPV vaccine. And when I mean not doing very well, I really mean not doing very well. And it's sort of baffling to me because here's a vaccine to prevent cancer in your kids. Yeah. It doesn't matter when they're going to get exposed to uh, the HPV virus. It doesn't matter how they get exposed. That's sort of immaterial. The point is everybody has some type of HPV infection or had it at some point in time from whatever. And why not protect against that? We know that um, the vaccine works. It works nationally. It works internationally. Um, And it seems to be working for years. So why not use it? And I'm not sure why people are against it. I mean, all the information shows the earlier you give that vaccine, the better off the child's going to be in terms of their protective antibody levels and their cell-mediated immune levels. I, you know, I think some of the some of the, the common questions that I know you have heard from parents and, uh, you know, just, I mean, and again, questions are fine. We're not scared of questions. Um, one of the main ones, because it is against a virus that is this sexually transmitted, is... You know, early on, parents had some concerns. Is this going to make my child, my my daughter or son, is it going to increase their sexual activity? Are they going to be sexually active because they got this? And we got some good data on that. Oh, yeah, the answer is clearly 100% no. They've looked at increase in sexual activity. does not occur. They looked in do they get other sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea and stuff like that. The answer is no. Is the pregnancy rate increased? The answer is no. Does it change condom use or anything like that? And the answer is no. It does not affect how the teen acts. That teen is going to act the way they're going to act whether or not they got the HPV vaccine. So why not give it earlier? Besides that, it gives better protection. Yeah. You're talking about cancer. You're not talking about a runny nose or a cough or a little dot on your skin. You're talking about cancer, which can be fatal. Yeah, yeah. And not, I mean, even if it's not fatal, uh, it is, can be terribly disfiguring, have chronic pain. Uh, you know, it can just change your whole lifestyle. And just uh, most people, uh, you know, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you probably either know somebody who's had some type of cancer 
uh, or have somebody in your family who's had cancer. And you know how scary that can be. Uh, you know the uncertainty, even if you've had, you know, quote unquote, a, a cure from that cancer, uh, that you live really the rest of your life in the back of your mind thinking, you know, what's going to happen? What if? Um, and it's it's important to keep that in mind, you know, with in particular about the HPV vaccine. It is different. I mean, this is really our first anti-cancer vaccine that we've recommended right. to the public. So it is a different, you know, sort of focus. It's not different in that it is against a virus, which we've had plenty of other viral, uh, you know, vir- viruses that we vaccinate against. Um, so that part of it's not any different. Um but, you know, another question I think is, well, if it's that important, well, and this is a legitimate question, I sort of, you know, question this myself, why is it optional? Why is it an option instead of, uh, you know, something that's, uh, that's a requirement? Well, I think uh, that, that <laughs> it's a tough question uh, to answer. Put you on the spot, Dr. Feldman. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, one doesn't want to make everything a requirement. Some of it is good sense for the parents. Sure. I mean, you don't want everything required. Yes, you want seatbelts required for infants or car seats. The answer is yes, because that's a 100% disaster waiting to happen. And, you know, HPV is also a disaster waiting to happen. But why make everything a requirement? Some of it is basically um, just good sense. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in presenting that, I can say, you know, of par- most parents that ask me some of those questions, once I, you know, tell them about that, answer their questions that they might have or their concerns, you know, most of them will say, OK, I, you know, that makes sense. I don't want my child to have cancer. Let's go ahead and do this. And one of the other things, and it may seem trivial, but to an adolescent, I know it's not trivial. Um, I, not really an adolescent, but I, I had a young adult that I was taking care on my, uh, in, in the inpatient setting for a different problem, uh, not cancer or anything like that. But their main question after having a very severe, uh, d- uh, disease process was not so much about complications or anything that was going on. This is somebody in their early twenties. Their main question was how many times am I going to have to get sticked how many, how many stuck every day? How many times is somebody going to come at me with a needle? And for an adolescent, uh, you know, I tell people all the time, uh, young babies and toddlers are usually not the worst uh, people that are the most scared of uh, of shots. It's usually that 15, 16-year-old football player, uh, tough guy who pitches the biggest fits. So uh, the little, for some reason, two- and three-year-old girls, no problem. Uh, 15-year-old boys, man, they're like scared to death of that. So that's another another question is because this is a multi dose vaccination, correct? Actually, now it's reduced to two doses. Yeah, it used to be three, thing. but there's an age limit on that, right? Right, uh, you have to get it before age sixteen years, and that's why again we're pushing it and recommending it strongly for the eleven and twelve year old. They only need two doses. Yeah, I mean and that's that, because their immune system is better. It seems better, yeah, yeah. And the studies have shown if you go ahead and immunize somebody eleven to twelve. Their antibody titers and their response is going to be better than when they are 15, not 15, 17, 18, or 19. Yeah. Still recommended, though, all the way up through age oh, 26. Six, right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And there are some higher risk categories for that, um, you know, for particularly for males with, uh, for instance, with HIV that, that would, uh, you know, we'd still recommend right. for them up to age 26. So right. That's, that's important because there is a higher risk. 
of, uh, of having uh, other um, HPV-related cancers. We talked about cervical cancer, but there are other cancers, Oh, yeah, too. there's cancer, the vulva, the oropharyngeal cancer um, is That's a very common cancer. Mouth it's getting and throat. Mouth and yeah. throat. And one of your favorite Hollywood stars, who has a father named Douglas, without <laughs> having to tell you the son's name, he had oropharyngeal cancer. Um, and you can see that. Again, if you look at it, about 20,000 women per year get some type of HPV cancer. And men, there's somewhere about twelve to 13,000. And the vaccine prevents not more than close to 90% of these cancers in, uh, at these sites that's, by just giving the vaccine. That's huge. That's that is. Huge. That is. And in people who, who uh, aren't, you know, I, you know, if you can say, okay, well, are they causing all of the cancer? Like if you look at people who have these types of cancers and then you test for HPV, it's pretty low numbers, isn't it, on, you know, the, the amount of, like what, what kind of damage is HPV doing to cause some of these cancers? Well, what HPV does, particularly with the cervical cancer, it changes the structure of the cells. Obviously, cells are what line your cervix, your vagina, your anus, whatever you name. And it changes these, and then they become uncontrollable. But it's a very small percentage. And what we're doing with the HPV vaccine is preventing cancer in those small percentage that get changed. I mean, if you think about it, if there are um, 10,000 women who get cervical cancer every year, and that's throughout... 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, think of how many millions and millions of women there are of that age group, yet only 10,000 a year get it. So it's not very many. Right. But if you're the one who gets the cancer, it's 100% for you. Yeah, I can remember, uh, you know, no doubt in anybody's mind about the risk of uh, tobacco smoking, of of smoking, and then the risk of cancer. And I, I, I can remember growing up, though, uh, you know, 70s or 80s, the, everybody always pointed to George Burns. Right. Uh, George Burns smoked and, you know, lived into his 90s, and uh, he he uh, never never had cancer that we know of. Um, but, um, you know, that's a very small percentage, you right. know, and it, it didn't even take into effect uh, the COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or emphysema deaths of adults, you know. And now, we, I mean, it's a given fact that, you know, smoking will kill Fifty percent of the people who do it chronically—that's uh, a big risk. And um, the scary thing about HPV is you can you can contract the virus after just one exposure, uh, and it can be with you the rest of your life. And it's almost like a time bomb. Now it's a you know as as Dr. Feldman said, you may be the one who doesn't get cancer, but why take the risk? Right. And and, and keep in mind that the vac- there are multiple types of human papillomavirus, probably 50 or 60 types. But if you look at the major types that cause cancer, be it cervical cancer, vulva cancer, oropharynx, or wherever, that's covered in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So that vaccine covers multiple types which prevent that, uh, that risk and those changes which ultimately could become cancer, not 100%, because if it did, we wouldn't have a population. Right. Since there's only a small percentage, what you're going after is that small percentage, and there's no way to know who that is. Yeah. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about adolescent vaccinations this morning with our special guest, Dr. Sandy Feldman. 
plenty of time for you to ask any questions that you might have. You can reach us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. Two years ago, we took you to Baltimore and introduced you to Teacup. I'm active when you saw 33 years, as a matter of fact. Months later, she told us she wanted to get help. All around her, people were dying from overdoses. Fentanyl, that's The people that I used with before I got clean, when I see them cry. I'm Audie Cornish, a story of recovery this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. News you can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mbbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Dr. Sandy Feldman, and we're talking about adolescent vaccinations this morning. Hope you're uh, having squeeze in the last few days of having a good time of summer and thinking about how do you get your kids ready for school. Maybe you're already fighting that battle. Check out our program from last week. We talked about a lot of different ways that you might do that, from sleep, getting them back on those schedules, or uh, eating healthy, all kinds of different information. Tried to just hit as much as we could last week, but uh, try to do that. It'll save you some time. I mean, it's a big battle sometimes, particularly with those adolescents saying, hey, get up. You got to go. You got to go to school. And if they're involved in things like sports, all kinds of things you need to think about. But we're talking about vaccinations this morning, and uh, Dr. Feldman and I have been uh, discussing some of these things. Got a lot of time for your calls. You can reach us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or email us at kids at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Evelyn in Jackson. Good morning, Evelyn. Um, um, Got several questions for sure. you. So if you don't mind, we just kind of take them one at a time. Yeah. Uh, would you repeat the ages for the HPV? Because I think you said 12 and under, and then you mentioned, but up to 26? Yes. For women, it's up from 11 years of age to up to 26. Now, actually, you could give it to a nine-year-old 
that's the lowest age. But for the most part, the age you want to give it starting at age 11 to 12, up to 26 for girls, up to 21 for boys. Okay, because I have a son who's 21 and a son who's 17. Yeah. Well, the, okay, the 17 will be covered easily by insurance. Uh, the 21-year-old, you'd almost have to check with your uh, carrier of of insurance whether or not they will cover it because it's kind of borderline at age 21. Okay. So you covered my next question, which was insurance. Does the health department provide this? The health department does not provided um it can for vaccine uh vfc vaccine for children um you can get some of them at the health department uh the 17 year old would potentially qualify for the vaccine the 21 year old would not okay and so the the 12 and the 17 year old possibly at the health department is that what you understand yes there'll be a charge um they're usually, I think it's usually ten dollars right. for most of the vaccine. Right. I don't know if the HPV is. Well, I think right. the, the charge would be the same whether it's HPV or whatever your child uh, would get. Okay. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, our twenty-one-year-old went to college out of state in Pennsylvania, and in Pennsylvania, or at least if his. Uh, uh, at uh, Lehigh University, they required that he get a uh, an immunization up there because there is a new strain of meningitis. And as a teacher of the deaf, you say meningitis, and my ears go up. Okay, there are two meningitis vaccines. One is Men ACYW135. That's four in one, and the other is a Men B, meningitis B. That's the new vaccine. And some of the colleges require it. So it's not surprising. It's not required by all the colleges, but it is by some. And I don't know whether Lehigh is one of those universities that had a case of it. Um, it, we was. Ha- it was. That's that's why. I mean, like, for example, in Miss... Or, or very close to the university right. that wanted to cover right. it. See, we haven't in this state, so uh, we haven't had a men be in any of our colleges. Um, in so the we're going to wait till we have somebody sick with it before we suggest that you get it. <laughs> well, no, actually, the the answer to that is no. We really shouldn't wait. It's recommended that children get the M meninge ACYW one thirty five at eleven to twelve years of age, and then when they turn sixteen is to get a booster dose of that and the men B. The men B is not given until age 16 because men B, you want to cover the young adults, meaning 16 up to about 22 or 23 years of age. So it is recommended, and your physician can give it to you. It's not required, but it's one of those that that's what your child should get or your adolescent should get. Yeah, and that that may be another one too, Evelyn, that you may want to check with your insurance to make sure that they're going to cover it. I mean, just to know. I mean, you certainly could get it. Right. Yeah, the men B, by the way, your insurance should carry it. The CDC made a requirement such that insurance companies are supposed to carry it. Now, I don't know about all the insurance companies. You know, that's another issue. But in fact, they should be requiring it, are paying like for it. To, okay, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the need for vaccinations and I even think flu shots uh, for children who attend one of the four statewide wide schools. 
school for the arts, school for the science, school for the deaf, school for the blind. Because in that, they, these children often come home every weekend, are exposed to whatever is in their community, and then they leave out, uh, then they come back to school, give it to everybody at the school, and then those kids the next weekend go right. home, give it to everybody in their community. Everybody over the age of six months should get a flu vaccine every year. No question about that. Good information about that. The vaccine's not 100%, but it's better than no vaccine, that's for sure. And everybody should be getting it. You know, and again, it's not a requirement. It's just common sense to get the flu vaccine every season for every person. Me, you, your grandmother, your adolescent teen, anybody over six months of age. Uh, should be getting the flu vaccine, particularly, you know, you're right. It spreads around school like wildfire. One kid brings it in before you know what the class has it, then everybody else has it and blah, blah, blah. So they should be getting the flu vaccine. And that's a that's a good point, you know, about fl- influenza that uh, you know, different viruses and bacteria, they spread at different rates. And some of them are much more easily transmitted. Some of them are transmitted on the droplets that come out of our mouths when we sneeze or cough. Some of them are transmitted on our hands as we touch different things, and then somebody else comes right after that and touches it. So there's lots of different ways. And there there are, you know, some viruses in particular that are extremely contagious, uh, and those are the ones that we go after maybe a little bit differently and with a lot, you know, a lot stronger recommendations. And that's why a lot of people don't understand, well, why are you recommending flu vaccine now for pretty much everybody uh, every year, and that's why is because it can cause a lot of problems. Now, you know, you, you can look historically and worldwide in areas that don't have uh, good vaccination systems, and flu has a lot of complications and a lot of deaths. And it should be you know remembered that more people died around the time of World War One from flu than all the people who died in World War One. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, and now we have ways to prevent that. So I think that's that's a perfect, you know, suggestion, Evelyn, is that if you're going to be in those situations, and even if you're not, if you're just, you know, if your child's going to a local school, that's something that I would recommend to help protect them against that. And again, what which great idea is to keep in mind the flu doesn't present 100%, prevent 100%. But the important thing with the flu vaccine is those that get flu if they get it, even though they're vaccinated, it's going to be milder, less severe. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate it's not 100% protective. But on the other hand, at least you're not going to get a severe case of the flu. You're going to get a relatively mild case. Yeah. And, you know, something else, too, about the flu vaccine. You know, there's two different ways to deliver that. One is the traditional shot that you get. Um, the other one is a, a nasal flu vaccine. And a good example of, of you know, uh, of how vaccinations are monitored of, on the how well they're going to uh, be, how useful they're going to be, you know, that was not a recommendation this past year because it wasn't working, right? Right. And it's not recommended for this year. Right. Something that's coming down the pike, and we'll see it in a couple of years, is somebody's developed a patch. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. You put it on your arm, and you leave it on there a relatively short period of time, and then you take it off. And I mean, it's nothing. Even a Band-Aid can hurt a little. This thing, you put it on and take it off, you don't even know one way or the other. 
and which will make life a lot easier with the flu vaccine. But that's a couple Especially of years down for the those fifteen-year-old right. football players, right? Football right. players, yeah. <laughs> I want. The, I'm waiting for the Star Trek hypo spray <laughs> that can just you know deliver that in. All right, thank you, Evelyn. We're going to move on to our next caller. We've got Boyd in Tupelo that's been patiently waiting. Good morning, Boyd. Are you there, Hello. Boyd? Yes. Thank you for calling. Uh huh. I was wanting to ask about uh, allergies and the benefits of honey with allergies. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. A lot of people, you know, uh, there's a lot of good research that's been done on that. And uh, the theory is, and all this doesn't have a whole lot of science behind it, um, unfortunately, but the theory is if you eat honey, uh, particularly honey that is uh, that is local, you know, the bees are local, uh, that somehow they have processed all those antigens by flying around to all these different pollen, you know, picking up those pollens, uh, bringing it back to the hive. And if you ingest that, that you you switch your immune system in such a way that it uh, helps to cut down on the on the amount of allergies. I'm not aware. Oh. Go ahead, Boyd. Yes, go ahead. So I'm not aware, you know, and they have done studies on this if, if that helped. Uh, there's a lot of it, it's hard to do those studies because there's so many other factors that go into that on on allergies from year to year in people who chronically have those. Um, but, uh, you know, it, here's here's the bottom line. It, it doesn't look like scientifically that it raises any kind of or changes any kind of antibody levels. Uh, you know, can it uh, can it uh, decrease allergies? Maybe. But we don't have any hard evidence on that. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, if if homeopathic, and that's sort of the fancy term for, for uh-huh. talking about these kinds of things, if Bye. it doesn't harm you uh, and it doesn't have any side effects, I say go for it. So and a, a teaspoon daily or something? Sure. Or something I would be fine. Brain. Unless you have some other reason why you shouldn't be uh, ingesting honey, you know, as an adult, I think that's fine. Just go. And plus, hey, it tastes good. So, well, thanks. All right. Appreciate the info. <laughs> sure. Just avoid those bees while you're getting it. You know, um, mm-hmm. thought about that uh, while I was saying that. It's like I might not want to do that. Um, yeah. So, so there's a lot of other ways out there that you can, uh, you know, and, and look at about things that are sort of touted to be good for your immune system. Uh, let's go back to, to vaccination. So, you know, what? So, uh, back to those questions a lot of people ask. We've we've tackled some of those this morning. What about side effects of of getting the uh, HPV vaccine? Well, like most vaccines, there's the side effect of the shot itself. I mean, again, the football player who faints because he got a shot, um, it's kind of, I don't understand that. (laughs) But be that as it may, I mean, you're going to have some pain at the injection site. You're going to have some redness. You may even have some swelling. Um, but for the most part, the side effects are, are relatively mild. I mean, you think of all the traumas you have in life. Getting an injection with this little small needle um, is not, in my opinion, a big deal. Um, and you can, you know, there are differences. You know, a lot of people will call back and say, hey, I think my son or my daughter or me uh, that, that I've had a reaction and, you know, if they, even if you look at it, it's a, a redness or a raised, you know, area around that injection site. Is that a serious thing or is that something that they should worry about? Not really. I mean, if you look at the reactions at the injection site, they're all relatively mild. Yes, yeah, some kid's going to get a bigger swelling and is going to have a quarter-sized redness or is going to have a little more pain. But in terms of any major 
long-lasting effects. The answer to that is zero from uh, the injection. So again, they're relatively mild. Yes, some have more, some complain more than others, but they're not serious. They're sort of a side effect that goes along with the fact that you're getting an injection. Yeah. And if you look at how HPV vaccines are are manufactured and made and some of the background, it really is a clean, I mean, you know, all vaccines have have different ways that they're made, but really, it's really one of the ones that don't really have anything that you can point to to say, okay, that's going to be a problem. Right. And the other thing to keep in mind, all vaccinations, once they are recommended, they have continual ways that we monitor those. So there is a pipeline if you want to think about it that you report any side effect possible and it's the same kind of process with any new medication uh, that comes out that if there's anything that goes wrong then they encourage people to report that to to physicians to document it and to report it so it's something that we continually do and as i mentioned there are there are instances of vaccines in the past that looked pretty good when they came out but turned out not to be that good um, you know, one of the, the uh, older vaccines for uh, one of the, the main causes of diarrhea in children, the rotavirus, rotavirus vaccine, one of the, the newer uh, or one of the, the older vaccines uh, was shown to cause some side effects and was taken off the market because of that. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, they're not monitored. They are monitored. And um, they they you know, we have examples where we say, you know, look, we're seeing some some problems. We're going to take it off the market. You know, and something else to keep in mind in the last 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, when they do these vaccine studies before they're licensed, some of these populations are continually monitored for 20 or more years, just looking to make sure nothing unusual occurred. So they do keep track of that as well as the different reporting systems. But it's not like it gets licensed and that's the end of the story and then nobody looks at it. They continually look at these for possible side effects or possible things they didn't see in the first place. And again, many of them are over 10 or 15 or more years. Yeah, it's it really is a rigorous process to, that, uh, is, you know, if you look at, at different things that we're exposed to, and even if you take, you know, we just mentioned honey, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of data out there about that. There's tons and tons of data with thousands and thousands of people uh, just on one vaccination, just like HPV, looking at safety, looking if it, if it's going to work, looking at it, is it going to decrease the rates of these things that it says says it is, and uh, we continue to do that. And um, you know, it's one of the things in confidence that I that I can tell patients that we can tell patients, look, uh, the data's out there if you want to look at it. Now, you know, a lot of people surf the net, you, you can find anything out there. You can find anything. I saw one the other day that. Uh, you know, our current president is actually uh, was born in Russia, and, I, and I'm like, that's just not true. No matter what your feelings on it are, that's not true. Uh, so there are there's plenty of stuff that you can find out there that's uh, you know that that that's false. Uh, it just makes sense to go to a lot of the the documented studies that have been done on that. So. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Feldman, for joining us to talk about vaccinations. Hey, go get your, vac- your kid vaccinated uh, today. Protect them against some of these things that we've talked about. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and it's been a production of Mississippi Public Radio, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners just like you. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.